Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette with your host, Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, also on Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, and many, many more. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's www.corvettetodaypodcast.com. You can also sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group. We have over 1,900 members right now. I'd love to have you as a member as well. First, let me thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, Haltech Systems. Haltech makes the best cold air intake with world-class performance for your C5, C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. It's the quickest and fastest intake with no cutting or hacking. It's just plug-and-play and no throwing codes. Get your special Corvette Today discount of 11% off with the code CT11 online at HaltechSystems.com or call them at 262-965-4300. That's 11% off at H-A-L-L-T-E-C-H Systems.com or 262-965-4300 and get your Corvette Today discount. Also, midenginecorvetteforum.com. If you'd like to join this new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly community. You'll find a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. Also, a shout-out to canadiancorvetteforum.com, welcoming Corvette enthusiasts from around the world. If you've never been to the 24 Hours of Le Mans in France, you know it's the granddaddy of all races. Now, if you get to participate in the 24 Hours of Le Mans with a race team, it's even more special. Corvette test driver Jim Merrow is back with me on the Corvette Today podcast to talk about his Le Mans experience. Jim, welcome back to Corvette Today. Hey, Steve, it's like deja vu. I feel like I've been here before. <laughs> yes, you have, sir, and I really appreciate you coming back to talk about this. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. It's an awesome story. Before we get started, Jim, I know that there's a couple people that you would like to talk about before we really even get into the whole story, right? Yeah, actually, it's just one. As I go through the story, I'm going to talk a lot about John Paul Jr. He was my teammate during that 1995 Le Mans. And we just recently lost John Paul at the age of 60 to Huntington's disease. He was a seasoned, very successful race car driver. He won IndyCar races. I actually sat in the grandstands, I believe it was in like 1983, and watched him pass Rick Mears on the last lap at Michigan International Speedway and win the race. And he's won more sports car races than I can account. He finished second at Le Mans in a Porsche 956, which is probably the most badass Porsche ever on a race course. But he, he was super high profile. And during this whole story I'm going to talk about, he was, I was a nobody. And not for one second did he make me feel inferior or that he was better than me. He was gracious, helpful, friendly. 
And the third guy, Chris McDougall, who was like me, didn't have a lot of exposure. He always included us on anything he did. Auto racing couldn't have had a better ambassador than John Paul, and my heart is with his family. Well, I'm glad we talked about John Paul right off the bat because, like you said, we'll be talking about him more and more through the whole podcast. Absolutely. First of all, let's talk about your introduction to Tommy Sapp. Tommy was a real character. Tell us about him and how he got you going into this Lama experience. Yeah, there's quite a backstory with Tommy. This goes back to before 1990, and I was still in the W car group doing the Lumina. Chevrolet had just come out with a new package called the Z34. Back in the day, you know, it was a pretty cool-looking car. <laughs> yeah. And it was like the performance variant of the W car lineup at the time. They just came out with a 3.4-liter double overhead cam engine. And what Chevrolet wanted to do is back then, when we held Longley press shows, now we do like, okay, a Longley press show for the Stingray Corvette or the C8 Corvette. Back then, Chevrolet had their entire lineup in one place at one time. So what they wanted to do at that particular time, it was at Michigan International Speedway. And what they wanted to do was to showcase the Z34 was run all these laps on the high banks. And so we had to put together a car for this demonstration. I think we were running four or five laps. And there were two cars. They had just completed the 24-hour endurance run at Fort Stockton, Texas in the C4 Corvette. And Tommy Morrison was going to drive that car, and I was going to be behind him in the Z34. I think I was going to run four or five laps, but we wanted to have the car set up for an oval. And part of that is having positive camber on the left side of the car and negative camber on the right side of the car. Right. To get maximum grip. And unfortunately, in that old W car, the knuckle was welded onto the strut. And there was no room in the tower to move the strut, so we had to basically build these struts from scratch. And so I was fairly new to the ride handling community. I just had the job for a year or two. So I went to Scott Allman, who at that time was the Corvette ride and handling engineer, the same job I got about what, 14 years later. And he said, you got to call this guy named Tommy Sapp. Tommy was big into road racing, but his roots were oval track. He said, if anybody could do it, Tommy could. So I got in my car and I drove over to Wicks of Michigan and he went into his shop. And let me tell you something. I was not prepared for the guy that walked out. Tommy was a, he's a big burly guy from Albany, Georgia. He had a big old long beard, hated engineers, had no use for race car drivers. And actually he used to refer to race car drivers as spacers. They filled the space between the steering wheel and the seat. Oh my gosh. And back then, <laughs> back then we had to wear shirt and ties at work. So you know, I come walking in and he had history with General Motors and General Motors engineers. And he looked at me and goes, I just shook his head. <laughs> and I'm coming there with a proposal to get him some business. And he just, Tommy's Tommy. And he immediately gave me the nickname Geek just because I was an engineer. So from the rest of the story, 90% of the time, he called me Geek. Oh my gosh. But he was surprised when I embraced it. I wore it like a badge of honor because this is all Tommy Sapp. And I remember when I walked in and I kind of explained what we were doing, he was running, getting ready to run a, a race team. He said, you want me to get a driver for you? And I said, no way, I'm driving it. Again, he had no idea who I was. He just shook his head and walked away. But over the next couple of months, he did warm up to me. I think it was because I wasn't the stereotypical GM engineer. He knew I was a little different. I was totally blue collar. I was humble. I respected his expertise. I never questioned what he was doing. 
And I also made it clear that I was there to learn. So long story short, he did redo the suspension and we took it to the show. Everything went off as planned. The car was really good. As a matter of fact, it was so good on the high banks that we were running this demonstration four or five times over two days, maybe six. Wow. And then I got in a habit of, I started passing that Corvette in the high banks. <laughs> Because he couldn't go through the high banks as fast as I could. And Tommy Sapp didn't have much love for Tommy Morrison, who was the guy driving the Corvette. So I think that got me some street cred with Tom. Nice. And after that, we became great friends. Uh, even though the show was over, you know, a lot of times I would just go over to his shop and sit and talk to him until late at night. We became really close. And I was at that time racing a Formula V in SCCA, which this was really uncharacteristic of Tommy. He started attending my races. Wow. So that was pretty cool. That's how I met Tommy Sapp. Now, GM also decided to run the Geostorm World Challenge team in conjunction with the Geostorm Celebrity Races. Isn't that true? Absolutely. GM decided to do a tool program. It was shortly after the Z34 show. The Geostorms had just come out, and so what they wanted to do was run a couple of factory cars into the World Challenge Series, and they also wanted to do a celebrity production with the production cars in conjunction with some of the World Challenge races. Okay. It was a lot like what Toyota was doing at the Long Beach Grand Prix. Oh, okay. So Tommy needed support for the celebrity cars because, you know, there were like 15 or 20 of them. And so I volunteered. I just said, yeah, I'll go and help you out. And when I did that, then he let me be a crew guy on the factory cars and the races that the celebrity cars didn't run with them. So I was traveling with the team all the time. Kind of a little backstory that the World Challenge cars were driven by two drivers named Mark Wallachuk and Kurt Catello. And I didn't know this at the time, but Tommy didn't have much use for Kurt. <laughs> Kurt was a great guy. I mean, don't get me wrong, but he had very little experience. And, you know, those cars were front-wheel drive race cars. Right. And I also didn't know that I think Tommy saw something when I was racing the V and went to my races, but he was actually hatching a plan for me to replace Kurt the following year. He didn't tell me that, but at that point, he strongly recommended that I bought a Geostorm and race it locally to get exposure with the Geostorm race team and Chevrolet racing and marketing and things like that. Just going back to Kurt, you know, like I said, he was a really good guy. Trust me, the fact that he didn't drive that following year, he is a very successful restaurant owner. And he has several high-profile restaurants in Michigan. They've been featured on Dining, Drivers, and Dives, I think, show that was in... Uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, yes. Yeah, yeah. If you remember, there was a restaurant, several restaurants that Kid Rock was with the host. Yeah. Those restaurants are owned by Kurt Catello. Oh, okay. Kurt turned out just good. <laughs> <laughs> so I purchased a Geostorm. I went to a dealership, purchased it, took it directly to the Tommy shop, tore out the interior. We installed a roll cage. My wife thought I was nuts because here I go. I went by a brand new Geostorm. It had like eight miles on it, and we're flying it and turning it into a race car. <laughs> Got to take insurance out on it. We took a loan out. <laughs> wow. Even though I hadn't sold the V, I knew I was going in deeper, but it was probably the smartest things I ever did because I drove it a lot in SECA, regionals, nationals, and local events, set a couple of track records. Tommy made sure General Motors Marketing knew about it, and they did an article on me. So that was going on in conjunction with me supporting these race cars and the celebrity cars. Now, I digress back to the celebrity series. I can't remember how many races we ran, but there were some big celebrities. I can't remember them all. A lot of local news station celebrities and things like that. Some of the bigger ones that I remember, I remember Alfonso Ribeiro. Yeah. Who I think was on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, America's Funniest Videos. Right. I remember Tony Dorsett when we were running in Dallas, who was a great running back for the Cowboys. Right. And the third one, and this is this will go 
further into the story was a guy named Donnie Osmond. No kidding. You know, childhood star. Wow. Uh, let me tell you something. Donnie was the only guy who ran multiple races, but he won them all. He won every single one of them. Really? Yeah. So what surprised me was that here's Tommy, this gruff guy from Albany, Georgia, and Donnie Osmond, and they kind of hit it off. For some reason, they took a liking to each other, and Donnie started hanging out, you know, because there was a different paddock for the celebrity cars and the race cars, but Donnie started hanging out with the uh, World Challenge cars. Wow. As they progressed their relationship and Tommy saw something in Donnie, Tommy's wheels were turning. Tommy never stops thinking. <laughs> you know, he said, hey, why don't you fly up to Michigan? We'll bring the cars over to a track called Grattan, which is on the west side of the state. Right. And then Tommy called me and he said, listen, Donnie's going to come and I want you to train him. It's one thing to drive this production car, but if I'm going to sell this program, I need Donnie to be running lap time similar to my two drivers I have now. Right. So we went out to Grattan, and coincidentally, as I was working with Donnie, I was also tuning the race car. This is the first time I had driven the car, too, and I saw a lot of things. So I started working with Tommy, you know, changing a lot of the chassis setup, and the car kept driving better. Donnie was great. We worked together. I remember the first day, I think we shaved five or six seconds off his lap time. Wow. He was really excited about those cars. Hmm. And they were pretty serious race cars. I mean, even though they were front-wheel drive, they were making some serious power. They were front-runners in the World Challenge Series. So at that point, Donnie and Tommy started talking about Donnie driving in the following year in the World Challenge car. Wow. Yeah, Donnie said he could absolutely secure sponsorship, get you on fund the team. And then Tommy convinced Donnie that I should be his teammate. Nice. Yeah, it was great. I, I was very lucky. Donnie said, hell, absolutely. We worked it well together. Yeah. Tommy even got Chevrolet Racing or, or Chevrolet Marketing. I can't remember which one it was at the time to let me drive with him because typically Chevrolet would never let an engineer drive a factory car. Huh. Things were just starting to fall into place. I couldn't believe it. Amazing. Well, then what happened? Because I know Donnie was all set and ready to go, and then something really big happened. Yeah, it's a good story that ended fairly quick. You know, I think it was after the first of the year when we were getting things ready to go. Apparently, Donnie got an offer to be the lead in a play called Joseph in a Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what the hell is a Technicolor Dreamcoat? But <laughs> As it turns out, later on that year, Terry and I actually went and saw him. Coincidentally, I was in Tommy's office, and Donnie called Tommy and basically said, it was this is the toughest decision I ever had to make, but the money was just too much to refuse. Wow. Tommy tried to keep the factory effort alive with me, and he was trying to secure a funded driver, but he couldn't do it. And at that point, General Motors was kind of falling on hard financial times, so they just canceled the whole program. I mean, celebrity cars were done. The factory cars were done. It was over. I mean, basically, it was close, but no cigar. Wow. That's devastating. It really is. It was. I got a lot of close, but no cigars stories <laughs> through my life. But you know what? I got some really good stick time and some pretty good race cars. Met some pretty cool people. So if it all ended there, that was fun. So Donny Osmond pulls out of the celebrity races. GM cancels everything. What happens to Tommy at that point? It was kind of weird. It was shortly after he took on a job crew chiefing for Tommy and Bobby Archer, who ran Dodges out of, I think, Duluth, Minnesota. He had good success with them. He was crew chiefing the cars, but the Archer's brothers really like to micromanage the whole operation. Hmm. And you don't do that to Tommy Sapp. No. <laughs> he ran one season with them, and then he just disappeared. I had no idea where he went. Really? No idea what he was doing. Yeah, it was just, he was gone. Wow. I thought maybe he went back to Albany, Georgia. He was his own man. I just hope he was happy. 
I think three or four months went by. I, I can't remember who told me, but I found out Tommy's in New Zealand running a team that with their version of Trans Am. I don't even know what they call it. Oh, my gosh. Tommy's that kind of guy. He just pops up, and the next thing you know, he's doing something like that. And I just hoping he would be happy. It was shortly, I don't know, I can't remember how long it was in New Zealand. This is a kind of a blur for me. But then I found out he's in, I think it was maybe in 1993 or four, probably 94. Somebody said he's in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm like, what? And he said he's working on some race car for Doug Rippey. I have to admit, I was a little put off because, you know, we were pretty tight. Yeah. But Tommy's Tommy. And um, next part of the story goes on. I will regret thinking I was put off. Let's take a quick break here, Jim, and then we're going to talk about the phone call you got in 1995 that led into getting you going into Lamont. Sounds great. All right. You're listening to Corvette Today. VetFinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website with classified ads starting at just $25, and every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, VetFinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit VetFinders.com, the Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E Finders.com. KC Trends Motorsports has been the Midwest's largest custom wheel superstore for over 25 years. They specialize in C8 wheel fitments from the top brands in the industry like HRE, Vossen, ADV1, avant-garde and more they ship daily from their kansas city location to all upper 48 states with the best pricing and inventory in the country need tires casey trends motorsports has you covered they have tires in stock from michelin and pirelli plus they can help you with a customized wheel and tire combo for your corvette to truly make it one of a kind and if you need wheel ideas no problem simply go online to caseytrends.com for their car and wheel visualizer See the wheels on your Corvette before you purchase. Also, there's dozens of wheels and tire combo pictures to look through online to spur your imagination. And their expert staff is there to help you with wheel and tire sizing and offsets for your C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. Visit them online at caseytrends.com. See them on Facebook and Instagram. Make any Corvette a one-of-a-kind with KC Trends Motorsports. Call them toll-free, 877-962-5200. KC Trends Motorsports. You're listening to the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today, again, is Corvette test driver Jim Miro. We're talking about Jim's Lama experience. Jim, you got a big phone call back in 1995 that really got you going into Lama. Talk about that phone call because Tommy Sapp was gone, and all of a sudden he reappeared, and here comes the phone call. Yeah, it's crazy. This is where the story goes from, this is really cool to, holy crap, no one's going to believe this. But (laughs) at the time, I sold the Geo Storm. I was into it for a lot of money. It went back to racing my Formula V. We were running with SCCA Nationals. And I didn't know this, but Tommy was monitoring my progress. Huh. Yeah, I really loved racing Formula Vs. I mean, that was tight wheel-to-wheel racing. There'd be 50 or 60 cars in a race. We were running really good. They only made 60 horsepower, but they were so light, the lap times were very similar to what a Corvette ran. Wow. So here's the part I'll never forget. I was in my shop. I have a shop behind my house. Working on the V, I think I had a race the following weekend. The phone rings. I pick it up. 
and there's this one word that says geek. <laughs> geek? Yeah, we know who that is. And this conversation lasted like 30 seconds. And I said, Tommy, and he said, you all reckon you can drive this car I'm working on for Rippy? And I had no idea what it was, but I said, absolutely. <laughs> and he said, Bria Brainerd International Raceway, Monday morning, called Doug's secretary for the hotel information, click. That was how long the conversation went. So I called Doug's secretary, got the information, I booked a ticket, rent a car, Sunday night, I was in Brainerd, Minnesota. Wow. He didn't even tell me what time to be ready to go. So I woke up at 5 a.m. and just took a shower and hung out in the hotel room and waited for him to call. And then finally I got a call. He said, get down to my room. He told me that they had built a Corvette. Doug Rippey had worked some deal with Lotus to run the LT5 engine. They built the car. They were running, going to Le Mans. And I think it was making maybe six or 700 horsepower. Wow. And basically when Doug hired Tommy to do the car, Tommy said, I'll do it under one condition. And that is that I get to audition one driver. And then he tells Doug this story about this hot shoe he's got just driving a GT1 car, kicking everybody's ass on the East Coast. And the guy's name is Jim Merrow. And Jim Merrow is really running a Formula B, 60 horsepower in the Midwest. And I just thank God there was no internet back then because <laughs> if Doug found out really what my background was, I'm sure he would have said, that guy's not driving my car. <laughs> I'll tell you another quick story. This was something that, this is just Tommy. Tommy's partner at the time was a guy named Mike Begley. His nickname was Scoop. And Scoop told me this story. When they first went and saw this car, Doug had already built it, but I guess they really messed up the geometry. Hmm. And Doug is talking to Mike. Mike is facing Doug, and behind Doug is the car. And Tommy gets out this torch, and Doug's talking to Mike, and Mike's watching Tommy cut the back of the car. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so they're talking, and the torch is going through all the frame rails, and all of a sudden it's boom! And Rippy turns around, the back of the car is laying on the floor, and Tommy goes, now we'll build you a race car. Oh, my gosh. That's what Tommy was like. And the gearbox in that was really different, too, wasn't it? Talk about the gearbox. Yeah, it was a Weisman gearbox. Now, you got to remember, you know, I, at that point, didn't have a lot of experience with what this Weisman had to offer. You know, had no synchronizers, and that wasn't a problem. But the thing that really threw me for a loop was the shift pad. And it's exactly the opposite of what a normal gearbox would be. First gear would be over to the left and towards you. Second gear would be forward and so on and so forth. Okay. Tommy said Doug had mapped out what gears he wanted us to be in and what corners on the track. I had never driven at Brainerd either. When you're driving and you get accustomed, okay, this is third gear. Oh, yeah, third gear is going to be middle gate forward. And I'm telling you, it could overcome you, become pretty confusing. Sure. And for me, for some reason, I can do differential equations, but I can't add fast. And I'm thinking, okay, I got to subconsciously know what gear to be in. So Tommy sat me down on his bed and he said, start air shifting. And he would start going through a series of gears. And I had to make sure, you know, with my right hand, I'm in the right gear for these turns. It was, sounds corny, but I think he was getting a little nervous. I got, I got my reputation on the line here. Yeah. You know, auditioning this nobody to drive this crazy Le Mans car. So it worked. I did it enough times to where I didn't have to think about it and know what gear to be in. That's amazing. All right. So you got the gearbox down, the Wiseman gearbox, and you got your first test drive and your first audition with other drivers, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was a two-day test. And Tommy told me, don't get your hopes up. He said the main reason that he wanted me to be there was, you know, think about those Geostorm and that, those two days I was with Donnie and, and working with Tommy. And I changed a, a lot of the chassis tuning on the car. 
Well, they went back and turned and, and had some cars ran way better in the series. So Tommy knew I had this knack for reading the car and also working with him to make it drive better. And there were some very, really seasoned drivers that were at this test. First one, a guy named Dominique Dobson. He was, at the time, racing Indy cars, having really good success. Wow. Another guy, uh, Bill Cooper, he had been driving the World Challenge Series forever for Doug Rippey. He won a ton of races in the Corvette Challenge back then when they had it. The third driver was a magazine writer named Mac Demir, who was also very fast, and he was also going to do an article on a car, and then I was the fourth. But the cool thing was Tommy convinced Doug to let me arrive an hour before the other guys because they needed somebody to shake the car down. Wow. No pressure, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Admittedly, I I realized my chances were slim to none, but I was just going to make the best of it. I'm thinking, okay, just a week ago, I'm watching Dominic Dobson drive IndyCar races, and I was watching Bill Cooper run World Challenge races for years, and I thought, well, if it all ended here, if I get two days in this unbelievable car, just in like it's kind of like the storms, you know, what bad could come from that? Yeah. So we arrived at the track, and I saw the car for the first time. I'm like, holy crap, this thing is just crazy. You know, I mean, coming from what I, a showroom stock car, which had a full interior. And these are cars you just see pictures of, this beautiful race car. Yeah. And that's also the first time I met Doug Rippey. You know, I remember going when I, at these World Challenge races when I was doing the storms, watching Doug's cars run because, you know, it was always had Doug Rippey across the windshield. Sure. But R.K. Smith and Bill Cooper, and they were just gorgeous cars, kicking everybody's ass in World Challenge. It, it was really cool. And now he built, this is the highest profile car he built. And I just beside myself thinking, here I am talking to him, about to drive the car. And Doug couldn't have been more gracious. So after all, I was a seasoned GT1 driver kicking everybody's ass on the East Coast. (laughs) (laughs) Or so he thought. And so he went through the car, went through the switches, what switch run, what coolers. Obviously, what gears to be on for the track. He had a track map. He knew I'd never driven at Brainerd, so he knew I had to get used to the track, too. So he said, yeah, get dressed, put your helmet on, and let's go out and shake it down. And I remember going in the trailer, changing, getting into the car, belting in, firing it up, looking forward. The thing was just so loud. The sound was just unbelievable. But I look forward, and I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> it's surreal. I mean, I'm just taking one step at a time. Sure. And then Tommy put me at ease a little bit. He, Tommy comes in, he's kind of pulls the window on the side. He leans in, and he says, hey, geek, if you wreck this car, you are dying in the crash. <laughs> and then he started laughing, and I just drove off, and I just started getting used to it. Over the, the next few days, I was right rotating with the other guys through the car, and Cooper was clearly the fastest at the time because he had driven Brainerd before. But by the middle of the second day, you know, the rest of us, including myself, we were starting to get pretty close to his times. It's kind of funny how over time the car just becomes a extension of your own body. I know it sounds like a cliche. It was kind of like my V. It just became an extension you. And at the same time, Tommy and I started, like we did with the storm, we started working on the setup. The more we worked, the better a car drove. I didn't know it at the time, but they had already decided that they were going to continue to bring me back for more tests. And if nothing else, again, if this word all ends, I'm getting to drive a bunch of times in this awesome car at Brainerd to help set the car up for Le Mans. Yeah, that's really cool. Now, is this where John Paul comes into the picture? Yeah, it was. Well, it wasn't this test, but what happened was Doug had told me over the two days, it was more, we'd started talking about the whole time. This was the entire team's first time going to Le Mans. It was Doug's first time. He really wanted to get a driver who had driven there before, who was familiar with the entire process, could be a leader, could be a coach, 
Apparently, Doug found out John Paul was looking to go back to Le Mans. Doug got in touch with him. I can't remember how long after the first test that I did, Doug and John Paul went back to Brainerd, and John Paul drove the car. He really liked it. He thought it drove great. At that point, they'd signed a deal. John Paul was going to be the driver. It was going to be John Paul Jr., Dominique Dobson, and Bill Cooper. But shortly after John Paul drove the car, I get a call from Tommy. After John Paul drove the car and told him how much he liked it and how much Tommy and I had worked on it to get it to that point, Doug told Tommy that I needed to go to Le Mans with him because if the car wasn't perfect at Le Mans and he needed fast development done, he wanted me there to do it because he saw how well Tommy and I worked together. So I get a call from Tommy and he said, hey, you're going to go. We're taking you. You're not going to be one of the primary drivers. You're going to be a backup driver. Because I promise you, I get you in the car at least one time during practice, even if it drives good and they don't need me to set it up. I almost wet my pants. (laughs) If you look from beginning to the end, it sounds impossible. If you look at each step through it, it's like, okay, yeah, I guess it's conceivable. And so then I needed to obtain a Group B FIA driver's license. And I'm like, how the hell do you do that? So I started researching into it. I had an SCCA national license and I had enough races as a national driver. I could get a pro license. I got my pro license. Then I filed for a group B license through FIA because I had SCCA pro license. 500 bucks later, I had a group B license that I could drive anything except a Formula One car. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Jim, talk about the rest of the testing then and what happened before the car was shipped over to France. Okay, I can't remember how many tests I did, but I was back and forth between Michigan and Brainerd many times uh, during the next several weeks. What I always do is if they were testing Monday, I would fly in Friday night or Saturday morning. That would help them work on the car during the weekend before they loaded it up to go up. And that got me some street cred with Doug and Tommy. The cool thing, I think for the next two tests, I was the only driver. Wow. They were just working. They wanted to do some engine stuff, keep tuning the car, keep developing the chassis. Tommy and I kept doing that, and it kept going faster. It was funny. Another side story was Tommy liked to drive around the track in a golf cart, and he would sit at the apex of the turn and watch my hands. Oh, my gosh. From there, he could kind of tell what the car was doing. And then he would come back and ask me. I didn't know he was doing that. I'd just make sure what I said was in conjunction with what he was thinking. Right. And part of this story makes it funny is they talked about Mike Begley's scoop and another guy named Keith. They decided that they were going to go do this too. Now, Tommy sat at the apex, right? You never really go off too much at the apex. Right. Mike and Keith decided to sit at the exit of turn one at Brainerd. Now, the exit of turn one at Brainerd is, it's a drag strip. You go down through the staging area. I think it's almost a mile long. And then there's this long sweeping right-hander. And I remember, I would always lift for it. I think we're doing about 160, 170 miles an hour. And I remember going to Tommy and go, you know, I can't get myself to do it, but you think this thing will go flat out through turn one? And he's like, I reckon so. Next time I go, man, I'm like, okay, I'm not lifting. I go down, ripping gears through the straightaway. I can't remember if I put my left foot over my right. I said, I'm not lifting. I'm coming (laughs) through the turn, and at the exit of turn one is the golf cart. Oh, my gosh. And Mike told me, I got a little crossed up. I'm coming through, and I'll say, it's a golf cart. A little more steering into it. And then I started chasing the back of the car to that turn, and I just missed those guys by about two feet at about 160 miles an hour. Wow. At the exit of that turn. That was a pretty funny story. They were really good stories, but this is where it got interesting, uh, digressing back to the story. 
this. I didn't know this, but one of the final tests, a guy named Chris McDougall shows up and he's going to share the car with me. Huh. And I didn't know, you know, I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. And I guess the big Bob Bondurant had this big star search program nationwide and Chris won it. So Tommy and Doug, all they told me is we just want to see what this guy's all about. I can see why he won the star search because he was really fast. The other thing that was interesting, I didn't know about it, was after that first test with Dominique Dobson and Bill Cooper, apparently they wrote this list about things they didn't like about the car. And they left it for Tommy and Doug. And it was just absolute silly things. It was the seat needs to be moved a half an inch in this direction. The steering wheel needs to be moved a quarter of an inch up or down cosmetic things in the car it was just driver pampering which i thought was absolute nonsense let me tell you if i thought it was nonsense i knew tommy and doug thought it was nonsense right because remember drivers are just spacers (laughs) they fill the space between the seat and the steering wheel it was funny because after i had learned that i think i had one or two more tests there was a two-day test the team always wrote a list of things to do on the windshield with a grease pencil I drove for two days with that list written on the windshield, and I never said a word. Wow. And I, I don't know if it was a test or what. I just never said a word. I just kept driving the car. And I remember one time Mike Begley was standing next to the car. I'm getting ready to go out. I go, hey, hey, Scoop. He says, what? I go, hey, do me a favor. Throw a handful of dirt on the windshield. Picks it up, throws it on the windshield. I fire it off and take off. That's awesome. <laughs> As the testing went on, this guy named Chris McDougall and myself, we were running fast. As a matter of fact, we were as fast or faster than Dominique and Bill. Hmm. And then they got the letter, and then Doug and Tommy said, if Jim and Chris are running as fast as Dominique and Bill, why do we need Dominique and Bill? We can way cheaper. <laughs> wow. And so they decided to replace Dominique and Bill with me and Chris. And so I'm back in Michigan. I get a call from Tommy, and the next words out of his mouth are, you have been chosen. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He told me about the list and the decision, and I went myself for the second time. Oh, my gosh. It, it was like an out-of-body experience. I'm thinking people are never going to believe this, how I progressed to this thing. Racing a Formula V, and I'm going to Lamar. That's incredible. Jim, let's take another break real quick because this is a good time to stop, and we'll talk about Lamar in segment number three of Corvette today. American Hydrocarbon, your one-stop shop for custom interior, exterior, and engine bay items for your C4 through C8 Corvette. We can help you create a custom look for your Corvette with carbon fiber or 10 different color patterns and styles. We've served customers in over 28 countries all around the world. Whether it's a custom-made engine cover for your new C8 mid-engine Corvette or custom-made C4 interior upgrades, American Hydrocarbon can help you transform your Corvette into a best-in-class show car. Our products have been featured in VET and Corvette magazines, so give us a call. 813-476-5638. That's 813-476-5638. Visit our website at AmericanHydrocarbon.com or email us at pat at AmericanHydrocarbon.com. Let us help you make your Corvette the car you've always wanted it to be. American Hydrocarbon. 
Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want too. But what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today, again, back for another podcast, is Corvette test driver Jim Merrill. We're talking about his driving experience at Le Mans. In segment number three, that's exactly what we're going to get into. Before we do that, though, Jim, you guys were running LT5 engines. How did that work out? Well, during the testing at Brainerd, that was probably the weak link of the car. I can't remember the details. There was always an engine issue. There were heating issues, some thermal issues. I think I actually blew one engine. I was really worried about the reliability engine, but this was a partnership between Doug Rippey Motorsports and Lotus that he couldn't deviate from it. We had the soldier on. So then you flew to Le Mans, you flew to France. John Paul Jr. is there with you and participates in pre-race festivities and everything, right? Yeah, well, with Doug's travel agent, he arranged me to fly to Atlanta and meet John and then fly with John to Paris. I had never met John, just knew about him, watched him race. Right. And I was kind of nervous because we were sitting together and I'm walking down the aisle and my nervousness lasted for about 10 seconds. John stood up, had a big smile on his face. He was the nicest guy. He complimented me on setting up the car. Nice. I was put at ease immediately. I'm like, okay, I don't have to worry about feeling inferior. I can't stress how important that was to me is where I was going, what I was doing, not getting overwhelmed by it. He was just absolutely awesome. We flew to Paris, rented a car, we drove to Le Mans. And that was on Saturday before the race. One of the big ceremonies is a technical inspection, and that takes place in the town square in front of a big cathedral, and they roll the car between all these stations where you go through your tech inspection. So we were just kind of hanging out with the guys, joking around. It's kind of cool because where you roll the car, there's a post with string between them, but the crowds can get pretty close to the car. I'll tell you what, that Corvette had a lot of people around it. I'm just taking it all in. I heard about this, now I'm here type thing. And after the final tech inspection area, there's a trailer where the drivers register. So John Paul and I go in the front door, we registered, and I walked out the back door, and my world changed. It was unbelievable. 
I didn't even know they were back there because it was kind of fenced off, but there were just tons of reporters. And we walk out and, you know, I don't think a Corvette had been there in 10 or 12 years. And as it turns out, looking back, we're the only C4 Corvette that was ever there. So we came out. Of course, they flocked to us, but I think it's more because of John Paul. And they started asking all these questions. You know, I'm thinking to myself, don't make a fool of yourself. You know, I'm talking <laughs> to reporters from Japan, talking to reporters from Europe. Wow. It was overwhelming, but I also admit it was pretty cool. It's also part of this. They're not going to believe us back at work. We did interviews for about an hour. We really liked it. One of the reporters told me there was only three Americans in that race. It was John Paul, myself, and Mario Andretti. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm sure Mario Andretti is wondering who the hell Jim Merrill was. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, talk more about the pre-race practices and what happened with the car after you guys did all the festivity stuff. After the tech inspection, actually for the drivers, the first practice was Wednesday. So Sunday through Tuesday were just pretty boring. The crew was working on the car, taking it apart, checking everything. Mm -hmm. Shortly after, John Paul's girlfriend came in. So Chris and I were kind of hanging out together. I know there were several Lotus engineers there. They were instrumenting the engine, running diagnostics. They were worried too. So Chris and I just hung up and we would just walk through the paddock area. It was amazing that even though the practice didn't start till Wednesday, there's just thousands and thousands of people there we would walk the track the part of the track that we could walk because part of the track is the public roads like the Molson Strait and right. several of the other roads so we couldn't walk at all we were just trying to get through until that first practice and finally Wednesday shows up and so they had like a two or three hour block in the afternoon and then there was a block at night and there was Thursday afternoon and Thursday night so finally we're actually getting serious about driving John Paul was going to be the first driver off the practice you know and then you know we're getting pretty excited about this now right I was going to follow John Paul and then Chris was going to follow me John Paul went out he did I don't know I remember how many laps it wasn't many maybe five maybe six laps and he came in with a broken clutch Ooh. And there wasn't enough time to fix it and get us back out. Yeah. So basically that end the day practice. And guess what? The next practice was at night. Now, I had never driven at Le Mans, and I had never driven at night in a race car. Yikes. With the possible exception, that first time I drove the car at Brainerd, I was nervous as hell. I never get nervous getting into a car. I was nervous. <laughs> it's like I'm going out at Le Mans for the first time at night for the first time with Mario Andretti, you know, and I'm thinking, holy crap. That's crazy. Again, if I digress back to that, first, just step through it. And so <laughs> John Paul went out and he drove. And also at night, you have to run a certain amount of laps under a certain time for you to qualify to drive the car at night during the race. Oh. Yeah. So John Paul went out and he drove it and he came in, you know, he had gotten under three or four laps under the time. And I'm standing there with my helmet on. He comes up to me and said, listen, man, you can't see anything. The lights are horrible on this car. We had never driven it at night, a brainer or anything. He just said, be careful. Just hit your mark. Be careful because you can't see. What he didn't mention is what I'll tell you here. Tommy said, I jumped in the car. I got buckled in, fired it off. And then Tommy leans into the car. And he says, listen, geek, the master cylinder's blown again. Ugh. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, we have no clutch. I look back at all the testing. We never had a clutch problem here twice in a row. Again, first time at Le Mans, first time at light, no clutch. Lights are terrible. No pressure. Tommy said, listen, we're going to start pushing you. And as we push you, just pop the car in the first gear and drive away. They pushed me. I popped the car in the first. I drove away. The only problem is, uh, is I'm going down pit lane. And this pit lane is, Le Mans, it's crazy. There's people everywhere. The lane for the cars is good, but the people are almost, you, you just got just a little width of the car to get out. 
But as you come to the end of pit lane, there's a light and it's red and green. And it's clear if it's red, you're not supposed to go until there's an opening up. And I'm driving up thinking I can't stop because I have no clutch. And I, I figured <laughs> I'm just going to drive through. I'll deal with the repercussions later if it's red. And just as I got to it, it turned green. I got lucky. Wow. John Paul was right, man. I got out there and I couldn't see anything. I'm like, oh God, what am I going to do now? There's a turn called Tetra Rouge, I think, that, that goes on to the Molson. And oh, one more thing that we hadn't planned on, and John Paul told me this, is John and I both wore glasses at the time. While we were testing the car in Brainerd, there was always no windows in it. Well, now you have to have windows in the car. So there's no airflow inside the car. So you, our glasses start fogging up. Oh, man. And for the next day, they did, ended up putting fans in the cars. So I'm going out. You know, I can't see anything. My glasses are fogging up. And I'm going on to the Molson straightaway. And I look, and a Porsche comes up on me. And I figure, I'm going to let him by, and I'm just going to follow him. I let him by. We get down to Molson, ripping through gears. I can't remember how fast, maybe 160, 170 miles an hour. We come up to that first chicane that goes to the right. The Porsche blows the chicane, and I follow him. So, he, you know, he's supposed to turn right. He goes straight. I go straight. And I didn't know this because we couldn't walk the track on the Molson during those days leading up to it. But there's a bypass that you could have wiggled your way through and got back on the track. As soon as I realized I had gone off, I hit the brakes, and I spun out. I remember, thank God I didn't hit anything. It was just holy crap. I got going again. You know, obviously, the Porsche continued through the bypass. I went around to the chicane. And as I look back at that point in time, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I would have hit something, all that time testing, all that time getting Le Mans, I thank God every day that when I spun out, I didn't hit anything. And somehow I, I kind of fumbled through my laps. It wasn't easy because you couldn't see anything. I never told anybody probably for months that I spun out on that outlap. It was the outlaps. You're not timing you or anything. I never said a word that I spun out. Just kind of went through it. I think I say it was probably months before I told either Doug or Tommy. I can still vividly remember driving down the straight between the Mulsanne and the Indianapolis Benz. But you got to go under the time. So I'm wide open and just almost driving in the darkness. And then you might see this little white speck on the right side of the track. And I'm just like, that's the curbing. Put your right tires over it. That's kind of how I got through it. And it was crazy because we were in a second or third class, a GT1 class. You come out of one turn and you'd look back and there'd be a set of headlights. And you're like, okay. And two turns later, they're right on you. It was absolutely crazy. And as we were going through the session, um, the radios didn't work. Ugh. We didn't know we needed relay stations. I knew when the crew was trying to call me, I could hear static. I think they could hear me. But I also remember that when John Paul got out of the car, they didn't put fuel in it. But Tommy said, when we call you in, you have to come in because you'll run out of gas. It won't make another lap. And after seven or eight laps, I'm hearing a lot of static on the radio. And I come by and I said, listen, if you want me to come in, I need five guys waving their hands over pit wall. Because again, like the pit straightaway, when you go down that front straightaway, these teams are 10 feet apart. It's not like you can see your group of guys. Right. So I came around one time and there are five of them waving their hands. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I come in. So I finished the cool down lap. I come in and I'm going to tell you something. I had never been so happy to get out of a race car <laughs> in my life. So they fueled the car. Chris went out. 
And then Doug came back to me when Chris was out there and said, oh, we screwed up. We pulled you in one lap early. You got to do one more lap under the time to drive at night. And I'm like, oh, God. So I got went back out and I got it done. And then after that, the next light, they fixed the lights. They added a couple. The clutch was fine. Good. I got to drive a car Thursday day practice, which made it easier Thursday night. But then on Chris's stint Thursday night, he blew an engine. Here we go. We had one spare engine. And so that was Thursday. So we had Friday and they put in that last motor on Friday. Wow. Okay. So you're ready for the race. Talk about the pre-race parade because you're the only Corvette there and the French love Corvette. Yeah, absolutely. On Friday, the day before the race starts, there's a huge parade. We didn't even know about this. So somebody came down and said, Hey, you got to get your driver's suit on and get downtown. And we're like, what? We get dressed, we go downtown. I didn't even know this was happening. But what they do is they have all the teams there, and they pull you up on stage, and they introduce the drivers to the crowd. And, and let me tell you, the street is, the town's just packed. I mean, as far as you can see, people were wall-to-wall. They pull us up onto the stage, and the place went nuts because the Europeans love Corvettes. And after they introduce you, you get into this convertible, of like a 1930s Peugeot or something, and they to slowly take you around the town during this entire parade route. Because it was the first Corvette, and the Europeans love it so much, and, and, and really back then security wasn't an issue, so they let the crowds come right up to the cars, and people running up and asking for my autograph, and it was just crazy. John Paul was sitting next to me, and I remember turning to John Paul, and I said, these people have no idea what kind of loser I really am. Last week, I drove my Formula V, and Monday, I got to be back to work. Nonetheless, I just tried to stay in the moment because my thoughts were, this may never happen again, so just enjoy it. That's incredible. What an incredible story. So how did the race go? Uh, Not good. John Paul started the race, and, you know, the festivities, we were all excited. Watching the cars take the green, finally, here we go. This is what we've been working for. I don't think he went 10 laps and the engine blew. I couldn't believe it. All that work building the car, all the testing in Minnesota, all the logistics to go to France. And I think we might have made 10 laps. It was disappointing. Oh, my gosh. So Tommy, Doug, and the crew started building a third engine from the non-damaged parts from engines one and two. Isn't that right? They did. Throughout the night, they took the blown engine out of the car. They got the first engine that we blew Thursday night out. And luckily, after we blew the first engine, Lotus had a bunch of parts shipped in from England. So they had two blown engines, a bunch of spare parts, And with all that stuff, they built a third engine. Wow. They bolted it in, and I think it was about 3 o'clock in the morning when the car got running. They sent John Paul back out. But this time, Tommy said, we got to make it to the end of the race. We're going to short shift the car. I mean, I think Redline probably was 6,500. So he had us shifting at 5,000 or even 5,500. He goes, I want to make this car get to the end of the race. And I was going to drive second. But because the the way things went at night, McDougal went to sleep about 11 p.m. And I couldn't go to sleep till about 1 because I was pretty jacked up on caffeine. Chris woke up at 3 a.m. I was still sleeping. And John Paul had about 15 minutes left in his stint. He was making the car live. Everything seemed to be good. Tommy asked where I was. And they said I was sleeping. But Chris was standing right there. So Tommy just said, okay, Chris, you drive. So Chris went out. And with about 30 minutes left in his stint, he sent somebody to woke me up and get ready to drive. So I slammed down two cups of coffee, 
suited up, have my helmet on, ready to go. Chris pulls the car in, and smoke's coming out of the engine compartment. Oh, no. Yep. So what was going on? Well, we backed the car into the garage. We lift the hood up. They did a bunch of diagnostics. I'm still standing there. I'm getting ready to get in the car, helmet on, ready to go. And Tommy's bending over the car, and he just turns and looks at me, and it just, like, haunted me. He just shook his head. Ugh. This time, Lamont was done. Tommy was pissed off because he knew Chris wasn't short-shifting the car. Oh. Because his lap times were significantly faster than John Paul's. I was mad, too, but it is what it is. I, I reflect back on it. I'm not too disappointed. I mean, that I ain't getting a race. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I was proud to be part of the operation, proud to be associated with those guys. And the crazy part is just recently, probably within the last month, a friend sent me an article. That very car is currently for sale over in Europe. I think it's got good value because it's the only C4 that ever raced all along. That's incredible. So whatever happened to Tommy Sapp then after Le Mans? This is what I was really struggling with talking about, even though it was 26 years. It's still hard to talk about. So I go back to my normal life, working at General Motors, racing the Formula V. Tommy got a shop. He's three or four miles from the Proving Grounds. We're seeing each other more. We're really close. Through that year in 95, I went back to the V. I was getting ready to go race the national championship. And this is kind of what surprised me is Tommy thought that Formula V was absolutely silly. He just said, that's not a race car. He told me, he said, bring it down to the shop. I want to prep it for the national championship, which was at Mid-Ohio. Nice. And I was beside myself. I'm like, this ain't Tommy Sapp. He's always been making fun of my car. But I brought it down, and, you know, for the next week, he helped get it ready. You'll understand why this is important part of the story. The night before I was going to leave to go to Mid-Ohio, we had worked on it until about 2.30 in the morning. It was just me and Tommy in his shop. He started a conversation that I'll never forget. Remember, he didn't have much use for engineers and even less for drivers. I remember so many times he would say, anytime we were in the car at Lamar or at Brainerd, his, one of his famous lines was, hey, for anyone of you nitwits, we were nitwits. Oh. When I was alone, I was geek. When we were a group of drivers, we were nitwits. Okay. For every one of you nitwits I got driving this car, I got 10 in the stands who can drive it just as fast, <laughs> kind of putting us in our place. So he started this conversation. It's totally uncharacteristic of Tommy. And he said, I want to tell you, I'm extremely proud of the way you handle yourself at Le Mans. I mean, you went from racing Formula V to the biggest sports car race in the world in over a couple of months. You handle yourself professionally. You're a seasoned driver. And you're right there with the professional guys. And I'm still thinking to myself, this is uncharacteristic of Tommy. It was a heart-to-heart conversation like one we had never had. Right. I'll tell you why. It just sat with me. The very next day, when I was going to pick up the car, load it up, and take it to mid-Ohio, I needed to put the rear shock on. So he wanted to do it for me, so he called me at work because I had the shock in my car. And he said, hey, run that shock down to me. I'll put it on before, before you load it up. And I think it looked so only a four or five minute drive down to a shop. I think about seven or eight, 10 minutes I left. I'm driving down to a shop and suddenly there's a police car there and they're detouring everybody off the main road and around all these dirt roads. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever. I'll just go around and come back in from the other way. I come back in the other way, and they had the road closed again. This was probably a quarter of a mile from his shop. So there's a McDonald's, so I just parked at McDonald's. I decided to, I'm just going to ask the cop if I can walk down and drop off the shock to my buddy. He said, yeah, no problem. So I'm walking down, and this is like things become surreal. I'm walking down, and I could see a red car against a tree. It wasn't like into the tree. The front of the car was seven or eight feet up on the tree. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? 
I'm walking a little closer. I go, my God, that looks like the Cobra replica Tommy's been working on for another customer. And I'm walking, and, and then I hear somebody yell, Jim, Jim, and it's Tommy's wife, Bonnie. The next words out of her mouth will haunt me forever. She just said, Tommy's dead. Oh. And I'm like, what? And what happened was, in between the time he had called me and said, bring the shock down, he decided to take this car off for a quick test drive. And what they had just paved the road with two layers of asphalt, and they didn't build the shoulder up. So there was probably an eight-inch drop between the asphalt and the shoulder. That Cobra sat low, so he dropped his right wheel, and it just shot him hard right into the tree. Admittedly, Tommy never wore seatbelts, ever. And he got thrown from the car. Mike found him, and it was just a horrible thing. I truly believe if he wore a seatbelt, he'd be alive. But you don't tell Tommy to wear a seatbelt. And that's why I go back to that conversation we had. It was the night before. It was meant to happen. The only other thing after that was, you know, when Tommy was gone, the relationship between Doug and myself was very strong. And so after that, Doug was built a lot of race cars for customers, hundred, $200,000, $300,000 cars. After the Lamont thing, he had a new rule. The customer doesn't drive the car until I get to set it up. So over the next several years, Doug would build some like C5Rs. He was in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and I was in Michigan. We'd meet at Blackhawk Racetrack down in Illinois. He would drive down, I would drive over, and I'd spend two days setting up every one of his customers' cars. And I still got a ton of stick time in these cars. And then the third day, they have the customers show up. And you know, some of these cars went to France, some went to South America, some went to Japan. So I was driving some pretty excited cars. So it all worked out. It was just great. I look back on it, I still can't believe it. That's amazing, Jim. What an incredible, incredible story. Talking to people about Lamar is one thing, but talking to someone that participated in the race and everything leading up to that is just absolutely incredible. Thanks for telling that story. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Not many people know about it because, again, it was nine years before I even got the Corvette job, but I really appreciate you taking an interest and let me tell it because it's a very important part of my life. Absolutely, Jim. You're part of our Corvette Today family. Uh, I appreciate it. I'd love to have you on as often as we can. As a matter of fact, we're going to do another podcast with Jim Miro and talk about his time at the Nürburgring and on the Autobahn in Germany. Jim, once again, thank you so much. What an incredible, incredible Lamar story. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today. And thanks to our flagship sponsors, too. Make sure you take advantage of these great podcast discounts from Haltech Systems. You can get 11% off with the code CT11. Use that online at H-A-L-L-T-E-C-H systems.com or call them at 262-965-4300. Also, Apsis USA. Get 10% off online at APSISUSA.com or call them at 1-800-68-APSIS and Mention the Corvette Today podcast to get your 10% discount. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at Steve Garrett DJ. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.